On this episode of Geek 4, I'm joined by writer, performer, director, T.J. Daw. If you've ever been to a North American Fringe Festival, you've likely heard his name or seen something he's either created or co-created. T.J.'s been performing original solo shows at Fringe Festivals all over the world for over two decades, award-winning shows like The Slipknot and A Canadian Bartender at Butlins. He's also created or co-written many other shows, including Toothpaste and Cigars with Mike Rinaldi, which was adapted into the film The F Word, starring Daniel Radcliffe, Zoe Kazan, and Adam Driver. And he's directed and dramaturged many, many more. TJ also works as a creative coach, helping performers of all skill level and experience develop their own narratives, and he leads sessions and workshops with groups and individuals on the Enneagram, more recently, TJ's been writing online satire for websites like The Beaverton and 251. TJ is a voracious reader. Whenever I would bump into him around the Winnipeg Fringe, he'd have a book under his arm or on his lap. He posts pictures of the latest books he's working his way through. And when I invited TJ to come on, and we were trying to figure out what topics we could cover, he suggested we talk about his fascination with the history of pop culture itself. He regularly reads biographies and autobiographies of creative people to better understand something about their creative process, because TJ himself is a creator. I knew this conversation would be great. TJ is brilliant, has a brilliant mind, and is so articulate. But honestly, I was amazed at how great it was. In talking about the creative process, I was moved. Deeply. We talk about the myth, mostly masculine myth, of the lone creative genius and just how limiting and false that is. I hope you get half as much out of this conversation as I did. Enjoy. This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? TJ Daw, welcome to Geek 4. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. You are someone who I followed on social media for a while, I've seen lots of your solo shows, and you were somebody who just seems to have a unique understanding of popular culture, and it's something that you actually read a lot about, the history of popular culture. I'm curious where that interest comes from. I stumbled onto it. I mean, there's my lifelong love of pop culture. One of the formative experiences of my life was being taken to see Star Wars in the theaters at age three. Wow. Like a few months from turning four, but still like the... (laughs) It's not like an almost four-year-old is that much more sophisticated than understanding than somebody who just turned three. No. But still, it was a formative experience. And then and then my that was a big form of love and bonding between my father and I. So he brought me to see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theaters. I was six. Uh, E.T., I would have been seven, you know, just, just younger than Elliot. Mm. Uh, other movies like that, you know, Superman. And we had a VCR sooner than most of my friends did because my dad was a high school principal. So he had access to the school's AV equipment. And I had an uncle who owned one of the first video stores in Vancouver. So we didn't get free rentals, but you know, there was just that natural pipeline between us. Mm. So I was fascinated by that world from the time I was a little kid. I spent a fair bit of time on the road. Mm-hmm. Like in my adult life, I've done a lot of touring, mostly fringe touring. And what I've discovered only in the last few years, first of all, I always have something to read while I'm on the road. It's self-care and framing it like that helps me come back to it and prioritize it. But it's only the last few years that I've realized fiction is a lot harder for me to get into when I'm traveling. It's a lot harder for me to just enter and exit that world and get caught up in it when I'm at a fringe festival where there's a lot to do. I'm doing my own show. I'm doing interviews. I'm seeing other people's show. I'm walking from A to B. I'm running into friends and strangers and peers and blah, 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 having a lot of conversations. Uh, It's hard to get to sleep at night. If I'm reading a book on pop culture history, whether it's a biography, an autobiography, an oral history, or just a straight up survey of some aspect of pop culture, I can get right in. And I have a hard time putting it down and I look forward to it. So no matter how stressful life on the road is, because it's always stressful, even if your show is doing really, really well, there's just the stress of being on the road. That's one of those things. That's why I call it self-care that just keeps me coming back. Mm. So I've learned that about myself so that I make sure to do that now. And then of course, I also read books like that when I'm off the road and they just really work for me. They really feed me in a big way. And and I was doing it for a number of years before I realized like as a creative person, as a person who creates for a living, 
I'm just interested in understanding other artists, whether they're artists that have influenced me and whose body of work I know very well or not. I like knowing what makes creative people tick. How did they get a given idea? What were they going for? Did they believe that they achieved what they were going for? Uh, how did their career evolve over, over time? Are there running themes in their work? Because that's that's another thing I like to do is certainly with fiction writers, I like to read somebody's entire body of work. Yeah. As well as know something about who they are as a person or who they were. And how does that show up in their work? Because I firmly believe all creative work is autobiographical on some level, maybe blatant, maybe hidden, maybe even hidden from the person doing it, mm -hmm. but it's there. Yes. And if you're an astute detective, you can find it. Yeah, yeah. And if not, you can follow the leads of other astute detectives <laughs> who have been doing this work and writing about it. Yeah. I find that so interesting. Framing it as self-care is so, that's game-changing. Like if if I could, I, yeah. I think for many of us, if we could frame it as self-care, prioritizing this as something that gives you, not only like it feeds you, just, you know, keeping your head on during what must be very stressful times because I you your schedule during the summer must just be insane. It is. But also feeding you artistically that you can actually yeah. approach this as a fellow artist, curious about the way other performers, other artists, other writers, other whatever, um, approach their work. Has it changed the way you approach your work? Absolutely. Because the more of this I read or, and also watch, you know, I love documentaries as well and docuseries. I don't seem to prioritize those. I find when I'm on my own, a book is more likely to engage me than watching videos, but still, um, I just have a much wider body of references to draw from. So this comes up, first of all, it's it's there on an unconscious level at all times, which there's just no way to quantify that. But I can just feel that in me because the older I get, just the more ideas I seem to have. And then it particularly comes up in collaborations, whether this is a co-write with somebody or I, I lead a course on how to create a one-person show online. Mm -hmm. And... That involves a lot of one-on-one -on -one dialoguing with people who are in the course. And then sometimes they'll do individual coaching sessions with me outside of the course. And what they're working on, it's comparables come to me just naturally, effortlessly of this thing that you're describing is similar to this thing from this Peter Sellers movie or this thing the Marx Brothers did or this bit from a Nicole Byer stand-up comedy special and that kind of thing. And that's especially useful when somebody's nervous about something they want to do, when they need permission mm. to have the running theme of love. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's a brilliant writer felt really self-conscious and down on herself because that was her recurrent theme. And she thought like, what kind of a stereotypical girl am I that I just seem to be obsessed with love? And I said, yeah, John Cassavetes was like that too. He just admitted it in this documentary I saw about him. And he was like a tough guy, oh, indie filmmaker yes. before like anybody else. And he says, that is my theme. I've got a one track mind. That's what I care about. Love, what people do to get it, what people try to do, what people do when they don't get it, that kind of thing. And that seemed to really give her the permission slip that she needed to, to just say, oh, okay. I'm allowed to be interested in this. It doesn't mean you're a superficial writer or person. No, no. Um, it, you, you talked about collaboration. I had Carrie and KK on recently and was talking to them. You are the co-writer of Six Chick Flicks, which I yeah. said to them is the funniest show I've ever seen at the Fringe. I've fringed for 25 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, thank you. I hadn't even seen half the movies that are parodied, but th they are just so good. But they they talked about the way you kind of help with the collaboration and like, you know, when KK came on, it must be it must be so liberating when you're working with people to be able to use other references to to give them that permission to to go outside maybe their comfort zone that yeah, people have done this before, it's okay. That just must be really freeing for them in your kind of um, coaching work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Carrie and I had worked previously on the One Woman Sex in the City show, but she had never done a parody show before that. And mm. I'm not sure if KK had done things like that. Whereas I've got a pretty long and storied career of doing pop culture parodies. And all of that is mm -hmm. built on my childhood love of Mad Magazine and Mel Brooks. And I love reading. I, In fact, my microphone as we record this is sitting on a history of Mad Magazine. And beneath that is a 600-page biography of Harvey Kurtzman, who was the founding editor of Mad Magazine. And then I've also got Mel Brooks's memoir, All About Me, on my to-read pile. Might be under this microphone right now. But anyway, <laughs> these were 
formative influences for me. And it's really interesting for me to hear you say that you didn't know half the movies that were in the, in the show, because that was something that we talked about as we were creating it is we want all of, we want these to be gettable to somebody who is, who even who vaguely remembers the movies or who has never seen them. A big yeah. part of my love of Mad Magazine happened when my teenage best friend, his family used to go to swap meets. They made part of their living uh, selling carpets and cat posts that he would build as a teenager at, at these swap meets. Uh, he knew that I loved Mad Magazine. He didn't particularly read it all, but he saw somebody was selling this big cardboard box full of Mad Magazines. He bought it and then he sold them to me at 50 cents a piece. They were all from the 70s. And what I didn't know at the time was that Mad was at its zenith in the 70s in terms of circulation and just from my own estimation in terms of the creative output of the different writers and artists. There's a TV and a movie parody in every issue of Mad Magazine. And a fair number of the ones from the 70s were of movies and TV shows I'd never seen or in some cases never heard of. But mm -hmm. being the glutton for Mad that I was, I would read everything. I wouldn't just skip like Serpico. I don't know what that is. Like I would... <laughs> I would, because I want it, like, give, give me everything. I would read it more than once. I read all of my issues multiple times. Like, I'd read everything in them. The, the, the masthead, the intros, the subscription page, they all had jokes in them. They really rewarded close attention. Oh, yes. But they were, the parodies were written in a way that even if you'd never seen or heard of this thing, you still got a sense of what it was about and why it was worth ridiculing. So that was very, and I'm sure I referenced that blatantly when we were writing these things of like, even if somebody has never seen beaches, I want them to get it. Yes. I don't want them just to tune out and then tune back in when we get to the movies that they know and like. Yeah. We should be able to communicate this in a way that makes it clear what the story is, who the characters are, what they're about, and then have jokes based on that. It works so well. Like, and it seriously was one of the just start to finish funniest experiences that I've ever seen. I've seen the show twice. I saw it in Winnipeg the year it, it premiered 2019, I guess. And I saw it in Toronto a few months ago and yeah, just start to finish laughs. Hilarious. Just awesome. Love hearing that. And the mad magazine thing is, is so good. Cause as you're talking, I realize there are, there are things in films that I have mistaken that came from Mad Magazine that were part of the parodies <laughs> that I like. I remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark after a, a period of not watching it for years. And it is one of my favorite films. So I'm, I'm, you know, a little confused by my own uh, story here where um, how they get out of the well of the souls in the Mad Magazine article or parody of it. They, they just push something through. Oh, the set isn't built very well and push it <laughs> over. And I'm like, how do they actually get out of the world of souls? I can't remember, but that has stuck with me. And you're right. The attention to detail, the little, the little cartoons and the, in the margins and stuff. Oh, I forgot how much I love Mad Magazine. Yeah. And the writers of Mad Magazine, the artists were more known. Like if you were a regular reader, you would recognize mm -hmm. that's Don Martin or that's Al Jaffe, you know, the ones who wrote and drew their own stuff. But yeah. Dick DiBartolo wrote a lot of the movie parodies. Mort Drucker would draw them. His name isn't a household name at all, even for people who remember Mad well. But he wrote an autobiography a few years ago. So reading that mm. was really interesting of like, okay, who are you? Where did you come from? Mm. What makes you tick? What? How does your humor come across in the stuff that you've written as well? Like I, I literally can't get enough of that because these were the secret architects of my brain, basically, and to a large extent of pop culture. And what got me reading this Harvey Kurtzman biography is the fact because he stopped editing Mad Magazine after like three years. So that was in the 50s. So long before mm -hmm. I was reading it. So I never read anything that he wrote. But uh, in the expanded version of Mouse, Art Spiegelman described how he was brought in as guest lecturer to, to Harvey Kurtzman's uh, college course on how to write and draw a parody. And he quickly sussed that the students didn't have a very strong sense of who Harvey Kurtzman was and why he was important. Oh. So he dedicated his entire lecture to the work and career and life of Harvey Kurtzman and said, and he, he reproduces this in a cartoon recreation of the experience, that Mad Magazine had a much stronger effect on the culture and generation of the 60s than all the music and the drugs combined. Hmm. Because what Mad was saying implicitly was not to trust the media and mad was also the media telling you this. It says there is nothing you can't question. There is nothing you can't make fun of, including us. Yeah. 
Nobody has said that other than him, as far as I know. And, you know, it's a subjective analysis. So somebody could dispute that quite easily. Sure. But I feel a lot of truth in that, certainly in terms of myself and my own mentality and the way I approach the world. Mm-hmm. And that's and that set me up for why when I saw Blazing Saddles uh, when I was 13, it just hit me in the heart so much. And mm-hmm. I never taped over that videotape. My dad had taped it off TV onto my personal VHF tape, but I never taped over it. because, And I still have it in the box somewhere with the original commercials from 1987. Uh, and I watched it many, many, many times. And what I didn't realize as I was doing that was that was educating me. Mm. A lot of the best education for any artist comes by osmosis. Mm. And I was just learning how to dissect things. And in, in the case of Blazing Saddles, it's a spoof of Westerns. It's also a spoof of racism in culture in general. I hadn't seen that many Westerns. It's just not part of my mythology growing up. I'd seen some. Mm-hmm. I love The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but I wasn't steeped in Westerns the way the generation that would have seen that movie when it was new was. Mm-hmm. But still, I got it, and I found it funny. And there were references that I didn't get, and same with Mad Magazine, but like it's educating me about what the world is, yeah, how it works. And here's the points that you can poke fun at it, and it's giving you that invitation to do that yourself. Mm. And I'm still doing it to this day, you know, like, you know, Six Chick Flicks is a very recent show and Mm -hmm. we've talked about what's the next one going to be and the one after that and the one after that, because I am not anywhere near at the point of having satiated my appetites for writing pop culture parodies. Good. As somebody who is an audience member of your pop culture parodies, I am am very glad. Um, I mean, I, I would I would say that as influential as Mad Magazine, Mel Brooks has to be similarly um, influential, uh, not only to you, but like as culture as well. Cause I, I think of oh, yeah. like his parodies and I'm thinking young Frankenstein, especially, but then re- recognizing, you know, he was also a producer for, for David Lynch. Like he, he bring, he's a yeah. producer on the elephant man and kept his name off it because he knew what that would do. So this like him as a cultural figure fascinates me you know, from his early days, the, 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 the two hander act with, with Carl Reiner and, and the parodies and, you know, the, the kind and of, before that with Sid Caesar. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Sid Caesar he, he was, was a sketch show. It was Saturday night live 20 years before Saturday night. He live. was one of the kids in the hall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, he just so influential as a, as a, as an artist. I'm very curious when you do read his biography, his autobiography, um, what you, what you glean from that. Um, I, well, I've read a biography of him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's a book called funny man, which is one of those definitive biographies. It's nice and thick. And I read that a couple of years ago and just loved it. Mm. And one of the things it pointed out was that his formative experience was with Sid Caesar, where it was sketches, it was parodies. Mm -hmm. And then that shaped him for the rest of his career. You know, the number of movies he wrote that are just a straight story that aren't a parody in some way are the minority and usually not as good. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like a History of the World Part One is a series of sketches. Yeah. And you could even say that about Young Frankenstein or or Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs, mm-hmm. where there is a story, but there's a lot of like just bits in it mm-hmm. that could have been simply sketches. Yeah. Yeah. If he well, wanted them to do that. It's not unlike Monty Python. I think the two, you know, the, right. the, the Python films that stand out for me, um, Life of Brian, obviously, which uh, that's the one where they get the sketches, but it morphs into this whole story, I think, best. And then probably um, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail would, you know, it's kind of close. But, uh, you know, if you look at like Meaning of Life, it's just sketches and it doesn't quite hold up as well. But yeah, I think that same premise where you're just kind of these bite-sized things that work together to tell this big story. Mm-hmm. And each sketch, there's a nugget of it. That's just, someone came up with a premise and let's see where that takes us. Yeah. Let's exploit this idea comedically as far as we can, and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. And when it's in a larger arc, there's something really satisfying about that. Yeah. And I think that's part of the the secret sauce of the, parody shows that I work that I that I create is that they're parodies of movies mm. or of TV shows where it's a serialized TV show. So you kind of borrow the arc of the original property. There's still a feeling of going from A to B. And then there's many laughs along the way and mm. many digressions and cul-de-sacs and so on. But there's still this forward momentum that happens to it rather than simply sketch, 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 we're done. Which when it's great, Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Same with stand-up. 
Yeah. But that's always felt slightly unsatisfying to me about stand-up, including George Carlin, who is one of my huge idols. Yes. Uh, I love him. I know his body of work from start to finish. But in even his best albums, whenever it's done, and I would say this is the case for almost every stand-up out there, as soon as it's done, it's like, thank you, good night. And it's like, well, what? <laughs> oh, oh, we're done? Because there doesn't seem to have been a through line. So it, the through line was simply, this is the material that I thought of in the last however many years. Mm -hmm. And I'll start with my best or I'll start with my second best routine. And I'll end with the very best one. And I'll have the medium stuff in the middle. And sometimes there's a flimsy segue to get us from one topic to another. Sometimes there isn't, but it's just, it just kind of goes here and then there, as opposed to when there is a story that we keep coming back to, or when there's an explicit theme mm -hmm. that we're exploring variations of that just feels so much more satisfying to me. And that's one of the things that came from my studying of theater because I didn't train to be a stand-up. I didn't go come up through stand-up clubs. I've still never done them mm. where that kind of thing is just normal. And again, you absorb by osmosis that that's how this is done. I came through the theater where it was a play with a story. And when I started doing my own monologues, like I left the world of theater pretty quickly after I graduated with a degree, like I didn't even try to be the auditioning actor. I started just devising my own stuff. Mm -hmm. It was again, by osmosis, I just absorbed the injunction that you want to have a story of some kind. Yeah. And then that will allow for whatever variations, whatever tangents you have, but it's good to have that sense of a satisfying beginning, middle and end. I'm trying to think like, and so my, my standup, geekdom was probably high school years so you know that's when i was really you know, buying whatever albums i could find and i'm trying to think of if there were any stand-ups that really did it successfully i'm thinking maybe like prior on the sunset strip might have enough of a through line because it's more autobiographical but he yeah. still goes off into routines that don't link to that i think you're right i don't think stand-up yeah does it as as effectively how was that for you like you you study theater and then you realize I just want to tell my stories and, and monologues. Um, how was that? Like, was that a, a difficult transition? It was in as much as I had the attachment that's very easy to have when you're young or when you're aspiring in an art form to, to succeeding in that art form. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard for me to admit to myself, much less to anybody else, that I didn't love Shakespeare or Chekhov or Tennessee Williams or Carol Churchill or like the great playwrights and the great plays. I have seen very good productions of them. I definitely want to emphasize that, but I've also seen a lot of shitty ones over the years. <laughs> but regardless, I just didn't feel that yes from the pit of my soul, mm -hmm. even when watching a great Shakespeare performer or Shakespeare production. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel it. Whereas I did feel that watching the monologues of Spalding Gray oh, yeah. or listening to comedy albums by mm -hmm. George Carlin mm -hmm. or any number of other people, you know, Daniel McIver, I got into his stuff while I was a student and he was touring and he came to the Belfry theater in Victoria where I was a student in the v university of Victoria. So I got to see him live uh, or Ronnie Burkett who came to the Belfry as well doing these puppet shows, not for kids. And again, just blown away by these people who were doing their own thing, their own way. And the more I delved into that world, the more people like that, that I found, there was a lot less culture of that at that time. Mm -hmm. That was the 90s. Since then, there's more people who do that. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but at the time, it was just like, oh, that, that excites me, both as an audience member and to even consider creating that in a way that slogging it out and auditioning to be part of a Shakespeare production just didn't for me. So I had to come to that, that understanding just with myself and about myself and realize that the fact that I was not an enthusiastic or successful auditioner for the plays, even in my own theater department, didn't mean that I didn't have the desire or the talent to be an artist. Yeah. yeah. It just meant that that format didn't quite fit with me, but I found that what I really wanted to do was follow my own light. And that's where that light was shining. So let's go there. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I mean, how long have you been touring Fringes? I toured in somebody else's show, which was a Daniel McIver play, uh, 20 eight years ago. Okay. And then I started writing my own stuff and then touring a year, like in the late nineties. So 25 years, basically. You have seen fringe evolve. You've seen the, yeah. the quality of shows change. Cause I remember going when I first moved to Winnipeg in 99, 
to the last time I was at the fringe, uh, the quality of shows has, has changed dramatically. You have people trying different things, doing different things. How has that been as an artist, kind of like as someone who was on the cutting edge of, of doing these monologues that there weren't a lot of people doing those, um, in the late nineties to seeing people not only do that, but, you know, add things, add things that you might not have thought of. How is that creatively for you? Well, like I said, there's so much learning that comes from osmosis. Mm. So when I'm touring, I see a lot of shows. I don't knock myself out to see everything the way I once did, because that's just, it's physically impossible. And usually I'm involved in multiple productions. So I'm also seeing those shows mm -hmm. and conferring with the artists afterwards. And, you know, what can we change or what worked well and what discoveries happened, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I'm, I still learn from everything, mm. both positive and negative lessons. Mm -hmm. Bad shows are hugely instructive. Nobody would want to know that <laughs> on the giving end of that transaction. But I learned so much about what not to do. But I also see people open doors that I hadn't even realized were there. So I recommend that that kind of gets back to what we were saying before about reading daily being self-care. I think for anybody who's even interested in the creative arts, much less participating in them, it behooves you to take in creative work in any form that works for you. And that's another thing is if reading books isn't a form that works for you, perhaps because your attention span was fried through the pandemic. Hey, <laughs> maybe that's always been the case. You know, some people are brilliant, creative people. I know some of them have dyslexia mm -hmm. and have just never been able to fully immerse themselves in a book. We tend to put books at the top of a hierarchy of like smart people read books. Yeah. Not so smart people watch TV or YouTube. To that, I say horseshit. <laughs> Go to the thing that feeds you in a real way. It doesn't matter whether it's visual or auditory, whether it's print, whether it's music, anything, mm -hmm. whatever it is, find the good stuff and mainline it mm. and let it feed you. So on the fringe, it's an extraordinary opportunity to see a lot of theater and comedy. And I don't know that I, I, just at a guess, I would say I've seen more than a thousand shows in all of my years of fringe touring because I've done more than a hundred fringes and to estimate like to see 10 shows in a fringe is pretty normal for me. Mm -hmm. How many people see a thousand shows in their life, you know, unless they're a paid critic yeah. in a major city like Toronto or New York or London, like the, it's physically not possible, much less financially as I have. And like all of that just goes in there. And I've seen different trends come and go on the fringe circuit. Like since the nineties, I've seen fewer ensemble shows, more uh -huh. solo shows, uh -huh. uh, starting maybe in 2010, I've started to see more vaudeville style shows. So in the late nineties and early and mid two thousands, there were no burlesque shows. There were no magicians or mentalists or jugglers. Uh -huh. Whereas that kind of thing is becoming much more common on the fringe circuit now. And it's, and I've also seen more people bring back shows. That's something that never used to happen in the nineties. Uh, so there's repeat favorites and there's a good and a bad side to all of these things. And I don't control any of it. I can sometimes at least guess at the influence of my own work on some shows that I'm seeing. I never see things where it's like that person's just trying to be me, but it's more like a sense that my thing, if there's a fingerprint that my shows have, it's the tying it all together thing. Yes. And I will see that in the work of peers sometimes mm -hmm. and wonder, and I usually don't ask. In fact, I actually can't think of a time I have asked, but even if I did, like I said, a lot of learning is by osmosis. So they couldn't necessarily say, yes, we learned that from watching you. Because <laughs> I'm also not the only person that does that. They might've learned that from somebody else, or mm -hmm. maybe that's just when they were creating the new show that occurred to them mm -hmm. to do it. And then they followed through and then it worked. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe it just worked for me because that's what I like. Yeah. Um, we can cut this out if you don't want to answer it. That's fine. Because you've published some of your monologues. You've also had people perform your material. Is that odd to see people? Because, I mean, your stories are so personal. It's actually pretty rare. Very few people have done my autobiographical monologues to the point that when I have seen them, I get a huge kick out of it. Okay, good. <laughs> the show that is most frequently performed is semi-autobiographical, but it's a co-written two-person mm -hmm. play called 52 Pickup where very, very, very deliberately, each scene is written with a lot of latitude for interpretation. So every production of that that I've seen includes choices that my co-creator and I did not make and that did not occur to me. And I'm, again, delighted just to see like, oh, you found something that 
I didn't intend to be there, but you're not changing the script to shoehorn that thing. It's like that really works and good on you, which is what theater is all about as far as I'm concerned. If you're just going to do an exact copy of a different production, what's the point? Yeah, no, just tape it. Like, just, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I, I, that must be so interesting to to watch somebody take take something you did and and interpret it in a way that you're surprised but also delighted by um you know i I just think that that's that's really powerful um yeah it's huge fun and i could have gone further down that road of writing more shows like that that's Uh just not what happened and it wasn't deliberate um so there's there's a there's a parallel universe version of me that then after that show, which was in 2000, went on to create play after play after play like that. And then, you know, work to get them licensed and they'd be produced, you know, wherever people had heard about it somehow and wanted to. And then maybe I'd be flown in and see it. And that would be more frequent of an experience of mine. But that's not what's happened. Made into a film starring Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> yeah, that can happen. <laughs> it's a great movie. Thanks. Anything, anything else you want to say about history of pop culture? I mean, we kind of went in various directions, but. Oh, we could talk forever on that. Uh, I know. I, <laughs> I'm worried like we pick up that thread. We're going to go forever. I do like the idea of this multiverse TJ Daw who is writing <laughs> these romantic comedies. Yeah. I guess the other thing I'd say is uh, just to reiterate, to follow your light, you know, like if, just find the thing that works for you. And if you have that curiosity, and if you don't, I would encourage you just to, just to sample it of like, if there's a period of music that you really like, um, if there's a movie that you really like, if there's an actor or a director, we live in a time of pretty accessible information. And there are like, I co-host a podcast on the intersection of the Enneagram and movies. And we did a season where we were looking at different directors' work and trying to discern the personality type of different directors. And they were all major directors, Clint Mm -hmm. Eastwood, Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, things like that. People who had enough of a body of work that, first of all, their fingerprints were on their work. They weren't simply work for higher directors. Um, But they had had a big enough body of work that there are published compendiums of interviews with them Mm. so that I could read what they had to say about their own work in their own words. And quite often these interviews were happening when those given movies came out. So it'd be mm-hmm. fresh in their, in their recollection and, and do my detective work of like, what's not only what's your personality, but yeah. what are your running themes? Yeah. Uh, those didn't exist like say in the eighties or nineties. No, we no. live in a really good time of accessible information. So if you want to know what makes somebody tick, you can find out. Oh yeah. And chances are, that will open even more doors because then you find out that Martin Scorsese was influenced by this person or Spike Lee grew up idolizing that person or that kind of thing. And then maybe you know who that person is. Maybe you don't, but let's find out who they were. Let's watch their movies. Let's read interviews with them. Let's watch interviews with them. Let's let's find out who they were influenced by. And all of these different things connect. And And then you can triangulate from different sources of information And then again, as this is happening, a lot is happening unconsciously. It's feeding you. So you never know what's going to make you wake up one morning with an idea. Mm. Legend has it that Keith Richards dreamed the riff for satisfaction. And he did that after listening to Chuck Berry's entire body of work like a grad student. So he's like, you don't get to dream that for free. No. But eventually those seeds sprouted that particular flower which is one of the best known songs in the world today so there's every chance that'll happen with you and i think feeding your artistic soul is very much a parallel to feeding your body it's the same thing with your artistic spirit if you just assume that it's gonna happen it might but you can really do yourself a favor by giving yourself fertilizer in that way Mm. and good water and you're much more likely to have a fit artistic brain the way you're more likely to have a fit body if you're exercising regularly and eating and sleeping well. And if you're doing that and you see the show that is not very good, you could see the germ that could make it great. Like, you know, that that ah. idea comes to fruition because you have done your work. You don't get it for free. I think I think I think that's absolutely right. I you know, I've I've taught creative writing before and, you know, I've 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 published some stories. I'm not a huge creative writer, um, but telling students like the best you can do is read other people's work, just absorb all you can 
and find out what influences you and give into that when it, when the time comes, I think that's. And, and prioritize the stuff that speaks to you rather than the stuff that's canonically correct. If Shakespeare works for you, great. Um, but if Monty Python is more your bag, it doesn't mean that you're a dumbass. No. It just means that that's the direction your inner compass is pointing and that's worth listening to. At the same time, I'm glad that I know the works of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I know them well enough to recognize a quotation when I hear one or to recognize a parody when I see one. It is good to know those things, but there's a lot of classics, particularly in literature that I've never read. And I feel fine about that. Yeah. yeah. Because there's only so much time. Yes. Um, my, my PhD supervisor, George Tolls, um, says, uh, has a quote from Henry James, like be, be the person upon whom nothing is lost. And I mean, if you can try to do that, I think you're doing all right. Like, you know, um, it's good to have those, you know, that wide body of knowledge. And if you like Monty Python, Monty Python's not, not stupid. Like. Exactly. Exactly. And they were influenced by the Goon Show and by Beyond the Fringe and by the Marx Brothers, which I just discovered Beyond the Fringe um, a couple of years ago. Like the 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 actual recordings of them, uh, I, I knew the there's an Amnesty International um, concert. Monty Python meets Beyond the Fringe. One of the I think hmm. it's a pre Secret Policeman's Ball, maybe edited from Secret Policeman's Ball, but I think it's only Dudley Moore and or it's maybe only Peter Cook in it. So I was aware of the name Beyond the Fringe, but I didn't know the actual st- And it's great. Like, if you can seek this stuff out. Absolutely. I'm a five. So, <laughs> like, th- this excites me. Like, I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon YouTubing Mo- Monty Python and, and Mark's Brothers. <laughs> and you know, just, just so you know, you have now set the agenda for the rest of the day, which is great Good. because uh, my four o'clock appointment got canceled. So I have nothing else going on. So this is this is right up my alley so cool you got a good afternoon ahead of you i got a great afternoon ahead of me are you up for some fast four some quick back and forth let's hear it what was the first thing a young tj dot was a huge fan of oh i mentioned this already star wars star wars so that moment when the words star wars blast off into space changed my life and whenever i see those movies that moment brings me right back to that excitement that I felt as a three-year-old. And I've been chasing that ever since. My entire life and career is the pursuit of that feeling, both feeling it myself and transmitting it to others. Is there something you were a huge fan of, but for whatever reason you aren't any longer? Hmm. Uh, hair metal. That's <laughs> And... Classic rock in general, hair metal isn't classic rock, but as a teenager, I was really, I was really swayed by the rock radio stations would regularly do like on long weekends, the 500 greatest rock songs of all time. Oh yes. Yes. Labor Day weekend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what that imparted was what, yeah, what they were saying without saying is that there is a definitive ranking of songs and that they came out a while ago. Most yeah. of the songs on that list, you know, from around the time I was born or earlier. And the implication is that there are songs that are so good that once you hear them, you will never need to listen to anything else. I still don't mind classic rock when I hear it, but I never seek it out because what I've noticed was for decades, actually, I just had that as an implicit understanding is that I would find the definitive music or the definitive movies or comedy or whatever. And I would never need anything else as opposed to the fact that life is dynamic. The self is dynamic. Mm -hmm. The world is dynamic. Things are always unfolding and changing. And no matter how much I love any of the songs that moved me when I was 15, I'm no longer 15 and that's okay. And there are people who are putting out good stuff today Uh that speak to the conditions of the world today. There's also who are putting out stuff contemporaneous with the who or rush or pink Floyd that I never heard of and haven't heard of until today. So that if I explore that there's riches there. I wish I could remember the name of the band. There was a band that you referenced in one of your shows and they were kind of folk rock from the Uh, pentangle pentangle that I had never heard of. And I went went deep dive on them and yeah, there's all these things like there's absolutely a reason why things become canonical and there are reasons that can canons exist, 
but there's also gaps in the canons and they are not perfect. And you should absolutely seek out the things that fell between the cracks because you can discover some amazing influential creative things that will blow your mind. And that was, that band was one of them for me. That was absolutely. And that well will never run dry. Yeah. If you're a curious dogged adult, you will never reach a point of like, there's just no more music. Yeah. I know it all. I'm bored with it all. There's no more books. Yep. There's, I've seen every movie. Yes. I've, I've seen every single stand-up community. It's like, that will never happen. It can never happen. I, I will know that you are near the end of your career when you come out with the TJ Daw definitive list of 500 whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite venue to perform in? Favorite venue to perform in? Any fringe, any 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 festival you've ever done. Uh, the Kulch, which is the shortened name, but it's now the actual name of the Vancouver East Cultural Center. And it's a converted church. Oh. And it's it's wooden and it's got a good capacity, but it's still intimate. And I was seeing stuff there when I was a teenager and I performed there as part of a high school drama festival when I was a teenager and then came back to do stuff to Fringe and Ronnie Burkett performs there mm-hmm. and any number of great people perform there. They have a, an entire season. And it's just, it's a beautiful place. And I also just love the fact that it used to be a church because there's a lot of crossovers between theaters and church that it took me a long time to find out. Something a theater history professor of mine said is that the Greek tragedy was the model for the Catholic mass. Mm -hmm. It's a five act structure. Mm -hmm. There's interaction between a leader and a chorus. There's the retelling of a story that the audience already knows for the purpose of catharsis. Something Pete Seeger said in one of his books is that structurally a lot of theaters were modeled on churches or maybe, you know, maybe it's the other way around, but anyway, there's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And that I grew up very, very Catholic. Mm -hmm. And as maybe an 11 year old, when we had a seminarian come and talk to our elementary school class and asked if any of us were thinking of studying to become priests, I remember raising my hand. I was an altar boy. I'm also the child of two educators, Catholic educators. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's not a million miles of distance between me and a preacher at a pulpit or a teacher in a religion class, given that I'm telling stories and talking about fundamental ideas about what it means to be a human being. So when a venue is like the culture, a converted church, but it doesn't feel like a church, like it doesn't feel blatantly like a church, like there's still stained glass windows, but still has that whiff of, of worship and the sacred that really appeals to me both as a performer and an audience member. And then the other thing about the culture that I just love is that they have, re- they have rebuilt the thing from the ground up. Like they okay. raised it and rebuilt it to look exactly like the original, just to be more functional and sound. Mm-hmm. What they didn't change for some reason was this quirk that the seats have so that every now and then one of the seats an audience member is sitting in randomly goes boing, not because they've shifted in their seat at all. It just <laughs> happens almost like, the Joker was part of the architecture <laughs> team of this and it'll happen in a comedy show. So sometimes I've seen Mump and Smoot, this clown duo reference it blatantly, yep. but sometimes in a drama, everybody just has to ignore it. And to me, it's one of the funniest things <laughs> on earth. And it's like, there's no way they did that intentionally, but they also didn't fix it or can't. I just love it. As a very frequent fringe audience member who is terrified of audience participation, um, that scares me to death. Is there something new that you've just started getting into? Uh, I know off air, you you mentioned that comic book that you're going to start reading. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say that because I've been into comics for quite a while. You know, I abandoned them in my adolescence and then came back in my 30s. And I've kind of started to abandon them again. I've started to get bored with at least superhero comics. I think the peak period of superhero comics is between the year 2000 and maybe 2012. And there's so much good stuff in that. But I'll still read them every now and then. I'd say the big thing that's lighting my fire right now is comedy writing. My specialty as a creative person was always stories. And with Six Chick Flicks and One Woman Sex in the City, I hired a joke writer to Ooh. sweeten up the script. It's a guy that I know in Vancouver called Ian Boothby. He's absolutely brilliant. He cranks out high quality jokes on social media for free seven days a week. I've never read a bad one. They're often about pop culture. He's also an improviser, a sketch comedian podcaster. He writes comic books. He's brilliant, humble, nice, professional, fast. I just love him to death. And I was 
perfectly fine to relinquish that because I didn't think of that as my skill set. During the pandemic, I started dabbling in comedy writing for websites and I actually got an article published in McSweeney's, which was a huge boost. Mm -hmm. And then they rejected the next five that I sent them. And then I saw that Scott Dickers, who was the founding editor of The Onion, offers a comedy writing course online. So I signed up for it. And it's a video course, so you go at your own pace. And that got me learning his joke writing method, which has changed my life. Oh, And... He also does, part of the course is there's twice monthly Zooms where he gives feedback on work in progress. So I've got his direct feedback on things that I've written. And then that led to me writing for him because he now does a weekly web series where it's like 10 minutes of original stand-up comedy per week. Wow. So it's, it's my participation in that is finished now. He's decided he wants to write it on his own. But for like a good seven, eight months, he had a team of like four writers and I was using his joke writing method and I was writing 44 jokes a day, five days a week, and then harvesting the 25 best of those per week and sending them to him. And that process and the repetition of it has rewired my brain. And over the scope of that, I also um, submitted, audition isn't the right word, but I submitted samples of my writing for the Beaverton because they don't take open submissions, but every however often, like maybe every few years, mm-hmm. they'll open themselves up to new writers and I submitted and got accepted. And then their process coincidentally is exactly what the Beavertons is, which is that you submit satirical headlines anonymously and they get evaluated, not based on who submitted them, but just on the quality of the, of the article themselves. But the confluence of these two things has resulted in, I now notice myself coming up with jokes as I go about my day whether it's a way to encapsulate something that I've just experienced and turn that into a headline. Like when I was at the Victoria Fringe this year, I was walking to my venue through a neighborhood called Quadra Village, which is a little grubby (laughs) and has a bunch of apartment buildings from the 70s. But it all had these really fancy sounding names like the Tudor Arms or the Rutherford Manor and things like that. And that's something I'd noticed before, like apartment buildings with pretentious names, huh? And then not too long ago, I pitched a headline for that at the Beaverton and it got, uh, eh, it's good. It's not quite there. Try repitching it, which I did. And then it got accepted. And then I wrote the article, which just went up like a week or two ago, which is the apartment building called Regency Landing appoints maintenance Viscount to fix their leaking shitter pipes. And I was able to like <laughs> encapsulate this thought that I'd had just from walking down the sidewalk when I was at the Victoria Fringe into 300 words of comedic prose and get that published and put it out there. Anyway, this is a very long-winded way of saying Scott Dicker's writing course, which is called How to Write Funny, you can find it at howtowritefunny.com, changed my life. Okay. And I never thought of myself as a joke writer before. Now I do. Oh, wow. Now I write jokes professionally, and I love it. And it's going to be part of the parody shows that I continue writing. It's part of the satirical articles that I'm continuing to write and publish on the Beaverton and submitting to other humor websites. And it's just part of how I experience the world. It's like I learned how to do this new thing. It's like somebody who's been uh, a hockey player their entire life and suddenly they've learned how to be a gymnast. It's probably a self-aggrandizing comparison, but um, it's it's a different skill set that's not 100 miles away, but it's just, it's different. And it's something that I didn't think I would be capable of before because I was never the person that just comes up with a joke or the perfect witty remark in a conversation. That's so interesting for me as somebody who has been watching you for so many years because like you are you are really funny. You are really funny. So to put yourself in a a class on how to write jokes, the first thing that I thought when when you said that was like why would why would TJ Daw do that? But that you would be willing to put yourself in a situation of growth is really impressive to me because not many people do that. We we rest on our laurels, we stick with what we know as somebody who has made all of the life changes um, myself in the last in the last six months, like I appreciate that more than I probably would have a year ago. Mm. You're stuck in this in this this identity. That's not necessarily who you will always be. Embrace change. Yeah. Embrace something different. I think that's amazing. So, yeah, I'm I'm really curious um, how that's going to change. I can't wait to see your next shows. Uh, how this is going to change your shows because they are mm-hmm. so smart and you have that narrative. And now if you bring this new skill, the pummel horse, I don't know um, if, we, if we go with, <laughs> if we continue to go with the gymnast metaphor, how that's going to shape your, your, your new creative endeavors. 
I'm really excited for well, that. Well, one of the one of the big changes that happened over the last ten years, partially through the Enneagram and partially through my participation in different transformative ceremonies, often involving mind altering substances. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that as a euphemism, no. like ceremonies with guidance, yep. with counseling before and after. One of the big personal blocks that I've identified is not asking for help. And the root of that is believing that I'm not worth helping. And the root of that is believing that I don't deserve love. But of course, that's not the story you tell yourself. You spin it or I spin it, spun it in a very flattering way, which is just how wonderful it is to be an individualist. How many artists that I admire wrote and directed and starred in their own movies or were novel, you know, the singular transcendent individual. And then when I was able to identify as like, that is a spin doctoring job on the belief that I don't deserve love and help. That allowed me to cross the the Rubicon of being able to hire Ian Boothby to write jokes for my script. Mm, Interesting. And then that, and then also to at age 47, to take a comedy writing class after I have an established career as a person who's funny on stage. But just to realize like, I haven't mastered this art. I haven't, I don't know everything there is to know. And Scott Dickers founded the onion. It's like (laughs) the onion has made me laugh from the moment I discovered it. I have huge admiration for the guy. So let's maybe see if he knows something I don't. And guess what he does. Yeah. So the show that I'm working on now is, full of jokes and will again involve Ian Boothby and I'll probably involve some other comedy writers too. Awesome. And then six chick flicks was co-written with Carrie. Mm-hmm. And then when KK came on board, she contributed to the script and our plans for a follow-up is that it's going to be a full collaboration between the three of us. And yet again, we will bring in Boothby to sweeten it yeah. up. And very few people care it, whether one person wrote the show on their own or not. That is such a myth. The, the the idea of the single vision, the Alfred Hitchcock, the Steven Spielberg, like, you know, everything that Hitchcock produced and directed was supported by his wife, Alma Revel, who only gets credited once or twice. She was a script reader and and sometimes writer on everything. We just have this myth of the of the lone of the lone usually man, uh, you know, yep. standing out on their own. And you're you're absolutely right that that idea of of asking for help of saying. Oh, we're not going to get into therapy here, but yeah, um, that hits, that hits really hard, uh, me personally. So thank you. You're very welcome. And yeah, yeah. When you, when you really look at it through that lens, it's like, oh, that's, that's an ego thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something that I want to believe that other people are reading my program and seeing that it was written and performed by TJ Daw and there's no director listed. So he must've done that too. Yeah. God, he can do everything. He's a genius. Yeah. yeah. And it's like very few people are even reading that program. Much if they read that line, it probably Mm -hmm. is immediately forgotten. And the counterpoint to that is if they see my name written it with special contributions by Ian Boothby, nobody's thinking, oh, well, then this guy's a hack. He can't write. It's like, that is all just in my own head. (laughs) Nobody cares. What they care is, does the show engage them? Does it make you laugh? Does it move you? That's all anybody cares about. And if it does, who cares if it's got a creative team behind it that goes into double digits? Who cares if it's one person? Collaboration is so much better than, you know, producing something on your own. Like if it's the right collaboration. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when it is, you know, Blazing Saddles had five screenwriters. Monty yes. Python was six guys. Mad Magazine had the usual gang of idiots. Like mm-hmm. even if it was one person guiding it, one person getting final cut, like Steven Spielberg, he mm-hmm. almost never writes his own scripts. Never. No. And somebody that does write their own scripts, like... George Lucas or James Cameron shouldn't. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Carrie and I differ on our opinion of Titanic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she and I also differ on our opinion of Titanic. I love, I love um, Alec Guinness. I'm looking for the book. It's on my shelf there. Alec Guinness talking about, you know, trying to get through the dialogue of, of Star Wars. <laughs> and Star Wars, A New Hope was heavily doctored yes oh if you go back and you look at what um his his ex-wife what she does with she re-edited the The final sequence yes 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 it's the whole thing is saved in the editing uh there there was not the the tension of the the death star gonna blow up the planet there's a great youtube video about that oh it is so good um and you realize again 
the the myth of the single man as the creative force is just that it's a it's a total myth um, it's a toxic myth yeah yeah and it's yeah, very yeah. easy to be susceptible to if particularly if you're a man with visions of greatness actually now that you say that uh, like the the thing about collaboration i did start to notice a few years ago at the fringe like maybe 10 years ago i started seeing like on your show and like you and kier would work together and sometimes i think maybe jem like you would you would dramaturge each other's stuff like th there was this more open collaboration yeah acknowledged uh was that conscious on your part like uh not no it just kind of happened like yeah. here had a perfectly good career going on the fringe and then reached out to me at a certain point said well this is the next show i'm working on would you mind you know jamming with me on this and mm -hmm. then that worked out really well so and then the next one and then the next one the next one and then more people started reaching out to me uh, and then sometimes I would reach out to people and say, can I get your feedback on this? Or mm -hmm. here's this thing that I've got that I think might be good for you. And it just kind of happened. When I started touring in the late nineties, there were more companies. So that was happening, but within a given company. So individuals who toured were the rarity, whereas now they're the norm, but back yeah. then it would be three or four people. So there was, and then there were set roles within that company. One person might be the primary mm -hmm. writer or one person might be the primary actor, but they understood each other. So they were able to cross-pollinate and mm. feed each other in that way. Okay. Okay. It's just, it's a lot more expensive to tour with three or four people than with one, obviously. It's become so much more expensive yeah. to do the fringe. Like, and I, I always, I've said this a few times to different people. Like if I, if I had either grown up in Winnipeg and done high school in Winnipeg, like I would absolutely have been on the fringe because I was a theater kid in high school. That would have been a natural outlet for me. The Winnipeg fringe seems like it's big. But it's also like there's lots of places for people to kind of come in and, and do their own thing. And Definitely. there's a lot of local people who just do the Winnipeg Fringe. Mm -hmm. I'd never been to the Toronto Fringe until I went and saw <laughs> Karen KK this summer. Um, it's very weird. It's very different. It's very spread out. Yeah. Very spread out. But I, I you know, that as an option uh, was not uh, open to me when I was coming out of high school uh, many, many right. years ago. Anyways. Thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. This has been great. You're very welcome. Great, great fun. Now, you do coaching one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. with, with people. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I work with people on creative projects and on self-understanding through the Enneagram and both. So uh, my website is tjdaw.ca and there's a contact on there. If you're interested in doing that, I charge 75 bucks an hour. And it's a hugely enjoyable thing for me to do, to get into the zone with someone and explore. And I work with people at all levels of experience and at all points of the creative process. And if it's just the Enneagram, that isn't necessarily connected to creativity, although it often is. But it's, mm -hmm. again, it can be somebody who is at any level of understanding about the Enneagram. Maybe you've never heard of it at all. Maybe you've just know your type or, or you know, know a fair bit. But the purpose of learning the Enneagram is to work on your shadows. It isn't simply to find which personality type you are and attach to that. That's actually antithetical to what the Enneagram is all about. But it's very easy just to accumulate more knowledge about my type or about the Enneagram in general and then to argue with people about it. That's not what it's for. It's, it's to help you be a more present and joyful and productive human being. And there are simple, actionable things that any of us can do no matter what your type is i will link to your um your website in the show notes so people can just go there and and click on it and um anything else coming up for for tj daw yeah i just want to mention this the online course which i don't know when this is gonna when this recording is gonna go live but um early january early january okay that's when level one starts so we start on like the first week of january like maybe the sixth or the seventh but okay. uh it's again, open to all levels of experience and any point in somebody's creative process. Maybe they've got a 100% solid idea of, I want to do a show about this, or maybe mm -hmm. it's, I've always wanted to do a show, but I have no idea what it's going to be about. Or maybe it's, I don't even know if I dare do a five minute show. And even then I don't know what it's going to be about. It's like, there's room for all of that within the course. And okay. it's something I hugely enjoy doing. So level one is four weeks and that's January. Level two is 12 weeks, once a week. And that starts in like late March and then level three is in the fall. And the website for that is soloshowcourse.com. 
Okay. I'll link to that as well. Thank you. I can't imagine a better person to learn from. So if, if people are interested, I think absolutely go for it. And if it fits into my schedule, quite honestly, I think I'm going to do it because I'm in a growth mindset too. So oh, nice. let's, let's do this. Cool. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.